Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Besides the screen you spent most of your time staring at this week, chances are you are also captivated by a big screen video installation. From billboards to scoreboards, we inform and entertain audiences with our big screen solutions. Visit bigscreenvideo.com.au to see how BSV can bring your space to life. Welcome to Inspiring Stories for Bowra and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. Hello, my name is Tim McMillan. Welcome to another episode of Inspiring Stories brought to you by Bowra and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. Uh, My guest in this episode has a story to share that is quite unlike any that we've had on this program before. It is a story of survival through conditions that few people uh, could genuinely appreciate, let alone live to tell others about. Uh, Philip Lacco was uh, born uh, and raised as a member of the Mundari tribe in southern Sudan, but was taken from his family uh, and his home and his village at the age of just 10, essentially he and his family were sold a lie that he was going away to get an education when in fact he was taken off uh, to become a child soldier uh, to fight in the bloody civil war that had ravaged Sudan from pretty much the mid-80s right the way through until about 2005. Ten years of torture and abuse and starvation followed before he eventually escaped into Kenya. Another four or so years followed in a refugee camp where the conditions at times weren't a whole lot better. Eventually, he was resettled in Australia and here in Perth. And here he's been able to build a new life and to prosper uh, with a career in the mining industry. But his homeland of Africa is always uh, in his heart. So it's my great pleasure to welcome Philip Blacko. Hello, Philip. How are you? Good morning, Tim. Yeah, I am very well. Thank you so much for this opportunity. It's a pleasure and it's an incredible story. And uh, look, I know we're only going to get to scratch the surface here because there's so much to your story. <laughs> um, it is, it's really something and it's uh, beautifully laid out in your book that we'll talk about a little bit uh, later on. But um, can you just paint a picture for us, um, your upbringing, the first 10 years of your life uh, with your family in your village in southern yes. Sudan? Yep. What, what was life like that you remember of it? Yeah, so um, South Sudan obviously is um, a country uh, that has 64 tribes and each tribe to a degree has its own values and way of stealing uh, virtues to, to, to their children, for instance. So what I've noticed is that when I was growing up, obviously, was that um, duties are quite defined, um, kind of gender-based duties. So for instance, early in the morning, I would uh, wake up uh, in the morning and usually my sisters would have woken up already before me, uh, cleaning the compound. Um, and ideally, also depending on the age, I um, the thing that I do are quite restricted. So I would go to the farm, but not to do my, but only to observe my, my dad and my older brother um, working in the farm. Occasionally, I'd be able to carry some seed, maybe to help, um, for instance, by sowing. 
um, if we had to herd, um, herding animals, for instance, cows or, or in this year, livestock, uh, I would also not go far away. So I'd mm. probably look after the calf, for instance. Um, we do a bit of fishing. So I would be learning how to row a boat. Um, so usually on the shallow waters. And then after that, I can go into But of course, um, swimming was one thing that we have to learn as part of survival because every morning we have to cross the River Nile to go to the other side. Um, and, and of course, learning how to swim was, was not in an environment like here in Australia. Everything was, you could die anytime because most of the time they, they were actually infected by crocodiles. <laughs> so it was one thing that you have to brave up. It's, it's a survival requirement. So yeah. Or else you do it or you, you could drown one day. You had a close encounter with a crocodile too. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yes, definitely, yes. And that's why <laughs> I have never touched the ocean here yet. I still, Is that right? You I still haven't been in the ocean? <clears throat> no. I wow. went, well, I went there but never actually touched the water yet. So, well, there's no crocodiles down here, Philip. Well, but, so you, the occasional shark, which I suppose is just as menacing. On I think that's a fear. I think a lot to overcome. <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah. Um, so you're on the, the the banks of the Nile. You've got livestock. You've got crops as well. Um, no power, uh, essentially. So electricity was a foreign concept to you. No, no, but, no. Yeah. I mean, um, did you have enough to sustain? Uh, your your village, uh, food-wise? Did you have kind of, you know, the basics uh, that you needed? Yeah, I think, to be honest with you, knowledge, I think, sometimes create issues, I believe, because the more you know, the more you become kind of demanding. I, and even now, if you go to Africa, most people who live in the villages, or in fact, in developing countries, people who live in the villages have very little, you know, concerns about life issues. So back in the village, they, they don't, all they do is they, they farm, for instance, we farm, farm enough food to eat, but not to sell, really. And, and electricity, we didn't even know that there's such thing called electricity. So, yeah. so it was never an issue because we never know there was such thing that existed. You didn't know exists. what you were missing. Yeah. We yeah. didn't even believe in planes, we didn't believe in planes that fly over, it's mm. just, it's just foreign objects, don't know what they, what they are. But somehow, in a village, people knew of a, a town or country called London. We don't say London, we say London. And it's crazy. We just say it's a, it's a, it's a land of aliens and you never go there. Yeah. And that's how people have sort of uh, believe in the, in the village. So most of the houses are made, made out of, of, of mud. Um, and of course, uh, during the time, uh, during the nighttime, you'll have those wild animals lurking in the village. So you have... People have adopted um, kind of a housing system. They call it um, it's called like a like a tree house where they actually it's kind of like apartment style. Yeah. Look. So it's elevated. Yeah. So that you 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 climb up with the stairs and then the stairs get thrown away so that if there is hyena particularly they could easily creep into the into the village and if the door is not closed yeah they could they could actually particularly young children they would they would attack them and wow yeah so so and of course. Um, in general, I think people live very close. Um, but one thing I knew very well was that it wasn't my my parents' responsibility as such to to bring me to to bring me up or to to develop me to become a person uh, who I become today. But rather, it was every single person in the village was responsible to ensure that every single person, uh, every single child, grow up knowing that they have a, a role to play. Um, yeah. So. So that that I believe um, it's 
quite common in a lot of cultures uh, yeah. in Africa and other parts of the world. Uh, tell us what you remember of the the moment you were taken away. I mentioned at the start <coughs> there that um, you and others were told uh, falsely that you were going off to get an education that couldn't have been further from the truth. But tell us about what you remember of that time when it was decided that you would leave your family and leave your village. Yeah, so uh, I think what what happened, obviously, the education was used as a pretext because we used to see these nice vehicles passing through the village. So they were using that as a way to say, well, if you if you allow your children to go, then you would be able to, you know, you'd be able to drive cars like that. Um, we have seen a lot, some every time then people like the elders in the community, even my father used to be used to be taken. They go for endless meeting, they come back and it looked like um it was kind of uh, they were being con really to believe that in fact there was really a good plan to take these children mm-hmm. to school. So at the end when when the time came, my parents were given a choice to to decide to give one of their children away. So they had to give one. One or away. They, or they choose. Yep. Yep. And uh, they also prescribed that they wanted only boys. Yeah. So that was a question of so, so if this is education, well, then why was it gen only specifically, you know, male male? So it got to a point where my parents had to act quickly. In this case, my father had to choose, and in this case, he chose me. And I got to a point where I I was actually as a child, you begin to question yourself, and I begin to question yourself, well, like why me, you know. Like, am I the only child that is not liked by the family? But it haunted me for some time, actually. Um, and I actually believe that, in fact, I was not liked by my parents, not knowing that it was intentional. My uh, my father acted intentional because in, in Mondare culture, um, and I think most cultures also would have the same setup, that there are three responsibilities a male child would have particularly like when you become an adult, because we do have a lot of initiation processes. So when you become 18 and above, from 18, I think 18, 17, you get in, initiated. So you get taken away for seven weeks and then you are instilled, certain things are instilled in you, responsibilities. Responsibility to look after the elderly and people with disability. Responsibility to protect the assets of, of, of the, the tribe as well as responsibility to fight back enemies, for instance, if there was any attack on all that, you should be able to stand and fight. And of course, respect and um, responsibilities how to behave, like morals, how to behave, for instance, not to engage in marital affairs before you get married. And it, it's probably, probably mentioned how how we do, um, some of the listeners might find it frightening. Uh, over there, we, uh, when it comes to, you know, dating, yeah, I'm not sure whether it's appropriate to mention, but I should mention it because it's it's contrast. I was actually joking, joking about it at work, and like you know, I should mention here, over there people wear almost nothing; they don't dress much. Um, so, it's talking like here in Australia, which is way way is not prohibited. Over there, it's encouraged. Right. Yeah, it's encouraged because it's open and and people like for instance if. If I like a lady, for instance, I would, I would go and stand outside of that lady's house in the open, yeah, so that everybody can see that if for some reason this young lady disappeared, Philip would be the suspect. <laughs> right. And 
it's kind of created a lot of common transparency kind of within the village. So it's it's but obviously this is not happening as such anymore because internet now it's modern life and but of course that was something that was quite common then. Right. Yep. So you'd have up to three or four people standing just lurking around the house. And and the la- the young lady would come out and choose one she, of the people she, standing she out the front. Most if she has a sibling, for instance, a younger sibling, mm-hmm. she would send the sibling to to go and ask one of those people to go away. And this process could go on for two years. Wow. Yeah, so if you're like, sort of, like, if you're not very strong-hearted, then chances are you probably, <laughs> you give up along yeah. the way. But yeah, it's it's uh, quite like fascinating. A, yeah. yeah, it is yeah. a real test. Yeah. Um, how hard was it as a 10-year-old to be taken away from everything that <clears> you knew? Um, to go on this adventure, an adventure that you thought was going to be a formal education um, and the start of something, um, you know, really positive for you. Um, that was, as I understand, um, the context at the time. That's what you were led to believe was going to happen. What was it like, though, for you as a 10-year-old being taken away from from everyone that you knew up until that point? Yeah, so obviously it was... a Massive separation that was felt instantly. Yeah, um, it's quite it was palpable that I had to sort of give up everything that I knew. And I remember I used to have an arrow that I used to carry with, like mm. a bow. Mm. And I remember putting it on top of a, like I a prop it somewhere near the house. And I told my mom to look yeah. after it because I would come back and 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 take it. Um, but I was quite disconnected, um, completely disconnected. So I got disorientated. But I was also believing that we were going to go back. That was so. You thought you were going away for some time, and then you would eventually come back to to your village. That was that was definitely the we were led to believe that. Mm -hmm. The good thing was the teachers who were actually teaching us were preparing us for the way form of like learning alphabets and numbers. So the teachers who were helping us were actually came with us. Yep. And then they were taken for some reason after a week. Mm. They all disappeared. And that was ever since then. They were all all these people were behaving. The, the the rebels who took us. Yeah. They were quite, um, to a degree, they were quite um supportive. They were quite friendly. Yeah. Until the teachers, when the teachers left, that was when um we also began to realize that something was not right. Yeah. We also noticed that um we were taken at night time, so we we're put in the back of like kind of like a sea containers. Uh, but more so like, just, you like just road all train. these boys yeah. are just packed in the back of a sea container. Yeah, some of them are sea the containers. The yeah, some of them are like um, road trains with canopies. Yeah, um, so jammed in there at night time. And the idea is that so that we get completely dis- disorientated, so that we don't find a way to go back um, home. Scary. Uh, yeah, it was quite scary. There's no doubt. The water that we we used to drink from the Nile. So the water when we tested the water was just horrible. Yeah, it's water from like the bore water. It's, it's yeah. It was from there, and then there was also fear of constant bombardment from the aerial bombardment from mm. the government of Sudan. Yeah. So they start talking about these things. Like I said, yeah, occasionally you might be able to. And in fact, one day we had at a town called Torit, which is in the, in the eastern Equatoria. Um. Mm. So South Sudan has six region. So there is Equatorial region, um, which is so South Sudan definitely. Um, that region, they told it was when we went to, and from there, that was when we mm. witnessed some of the bombardment by the airplanes. Harrowing. Uh, Philip, we need to take a break, but after that, I'll get you to talk through the next stage of your life, uh, the, the 10 years that you were effectively held captive um, by the, uh, the, the SPLA, 
um, in preparation for participation uh, in that bloody war that ravaged uh, southern Sudan uh, for such a long time. I'll get you to talk us through just what life was like for that next uh, 10 years or so of your life right after we take a break. This is Inspiring Stories. Philip Laco is our guest. Back with more of his story right after this. You're listening to Inspiring Stories for Barra O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. You're listening to Inspiring Stories for Barra O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. Welcome back to Inspiring Stories. In this episode, uh, we are hearing the incredibly uh, inspiring story, a story uh, of survival uh, at its very core with uh, Philip Lacko, uh, who at the age of 10 was taken away by the Sudanese uh, People's Liberation Army uh, to become a child soldier to fight uh, in the bloody war uh, that ravaged Sudan uh, back from the mid-80s until uh, around about 2005. A ten-year-old, can you believe, uh, Philip? You've you've painted um, a pretty grim picture uh, in your book, the ten-year-old man, about life um, in the camps, um, battles on every front. You, you mentioned aerial bombardment um, coming at you at any time. You could have been bombed from the air. Um, food was incredibly scarce. Water was scarce. You battled illness, infection. You know, n- no access to. Um, to healthcare, apart from very occasionally, you, you know, you had wounds that wouldn't heal on your legs. It was just incredible. It's incredible that you survived. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, even when I look back and I um, try to sort of reminisce over the ordeal that I went through, I even begin to sort of question how I made it when, in fact, a lot of people did not did not make mm. it. So, how, how did you make it? How do you how do you answer that question to yourself? I think um, I allow myself to believe that um, there was there are certain things that you it's not worth fighting. So, for instance, we we knew very well by myself. I knew very well that the rebels had control over us. In fact, they they choose when to go when we go to bed, when we wake up, what kind of food we eat, and even toilet. They they dictate when to go to the toilet. Um, I remember um, mentioned the book there where we used to line up to use a long drop. Um, those of you probably know what a long drop is, but um, many people working in the mining industry, mm. uh, exploration, we, we, we obviously, it's a, a, a whole latrine, called latrine. So a hole with about 200 meters or maybe 100 meters deep, and we just you use that as a form of toilet, really. So, but we were controlled so that you go to use that toilet once a day. Um, I used to put a stone around three o'clock uh, to make sure that I, when I when when I eat dinner, I'll be able to get my time. Uh, so that was how you um, got your place in the queue, right? Yes. You 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 lined up these stones, and when yep. your stone got to the front of the queue, then that was your one time for the day yep. that you could use the toilet. Yeah. Um, what was it? What was it, an average day like? And can I just just to clarify, you mentioned that. Um, when you were taken away initially, your teachers that you'd come to know in your early years were with you. When they left or just seemed to vanish without trace, um, that's when the, the rebel um, army officers yeah. really made themselves known to you and life yeah. changed um, for, the, for the worse and conditions became yeah. a lot more brutal. From that point on, I mean, what was a day like for you, you know, keeping in mind you're only 10 years old? Yeah, so what happened was, um, so in that town called Torit, was actually structured, was did have some buildings that actually 
shows that there was learning taking place in those areas. Yep. But when the teachers were taken away, we were actually relocated from there. But the the most fascinating thing was that we we never had any any learning at that place. So we're there for I think about three months. We're taken into again all the travel was done by night, um, usually at night time. We're put into these trucks, and then we're taken to a new town called Polotaka, um, and this is the town where we went in. We we arrive at night. Uh, some of the photos were probably, and this is the photo. Some of the photos we, we arrived there at night. We slept completely opened. Um, the next day we're put into groups, and and then that was the time when there was a lot of beating. Um, they they won't really say uh, words to sort of give people instruction in, in without any caning of any sort. I remember one night we were sleeping and we would they would storm into the into the place where we were sleeping. Most of the time we sleep on the floor. We didn't have any blankets really. So there's no no bedding whatsoever no, really. No, no, no. So so like myself, I even one thing probably to answer the question about survival. I even. I deprive myself of sleep so that I at least don't get so much of that beating. I also allow myself to believe that if I was to go home, I would upset my father because he gave me away. Um, so, so that I and I also chose not to fight some of these forces. I become submissive, uh, completely give in, completely give yeah. in. What, what did that mean to give in? To, just to give in to the the life that you were being forced. To lead, so you accepted that there was hardly any food to eat, hardly any water to drink, um, and that life was going to be tough. Yeah, so I think I, um, I I adopted the mindset of living day by day. Um, if I survive today, then I said, okay, one day down, <laughs> then hope for the next day, and and it it went on and on and but but I knew also deep down that. Because it's, it's like, you know, when you have that calling, you know deep in your heart there's something greater you could do, but no one will understand if you explain to them. So I felt like I think things will change eventually, and I believe there's a there's a larger, there's a bigger calling um, out there, and we just have to sort of let this go past. But I also know that no one is, no one is, is you know, is is um, um, sentenced or, in fact, given sort of, some form of suffering for eternity. So I felt like nothing is permanent. So whatever situation we were going through, hopefully, it will it will come to uh, to an end. Yeah. Um, but I think one also one thing that helped me a lot also the wounds that you mentioned. Um, they were quite actually severe wounds. I could not stand literally for for even for for any like standing in one place for long. It's it's a challenge. Um, right. Most of the time would be. Just completely infectious. In fact, I was going to lose. I thought I was going to lose my legs. Um, but one thing also we're doing a lot was constant. We used to carry a lot of bamboo um, for construction, so it was becoming like a labor camp. So we have to build these schools that we're going to be learning uh, from. But at the same time, these schools were actually were were being used as a ploy um, to seek funding or to seek kind of help from developing nations and probably heard of probably read about the doctor from French, uh, the French, the French doctor, Dr. Ostrowski, who helped us a lot uh, in that regard. Um, we also have the people, Norwegian, Norwegian people eight, 
example, NPA, they really also contributed greatly in supporting us um, yeah. in that in that way. As a, a child and being um, taken away from everything that you knew and then put in this uh, labour camp um, to be groomed to fight uh, in this war, did, did you have any idea of the fact that there was this civil war, this, this territorial war going on and why there was this, this war playing out? Did you have any no. concept of, of that? No. Uh, as a matter of fact, none of us didn't understand why there was such a fight. Um, we're looking at it from from the village. So I know very well, um, even I, like, I didn't even know that there were other people that existed in the world other than us in that village. Mm. Never thought of that. But um, but the fact that they were they were, we were being forced to sort of think like them, um, it, it became apparent that there was no other choice um, for for any one of us. So a lot of people tried to escape. Um, some of them get caught, and of course they they never made it back. Yeah. Um, so if you tried to escape, what were the consequences? Yeah, they will kill you on the spot. Yeah, they will definitely make sure that you you are not you're not there. They will eliminate yeah. you. Yeah. So you saw some of the, the 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 boys in the camp who tried to escape, they would be executed. <clears throat> yeah, so not not directly seeing them being executed, but they will definitely get get killed. We will hear them that they've been they've been they've been killed. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, we also know that um, the, the other young people we were. So what they do, they do is, is screening as such. Like, so they they will come and and select people like nearly, nearly every two years it's almost like becoming like a nursery they they grow you and then they come up every two years to take to take those who are able to hold guns and i remember actually a colleague who is actually is his middle his first name is similar to my name Petia. he literally i actually saw himself i saw him killing himself because it was people were given guns and was trying to play there to see how you can actually hold the gun and try to take the magazine off, yep. but instead of pointing the barrel downward, he pointed it towards him and accidentally he, he pressed the trigger and in fact there was a bullet in him. So he's pretty much, he killed himself on the spot. He shot himself. He shot himself, literally. And that was simply because there was no proper instructions exactly mm-hmm. about gun safety and all that. And that was quite traumatic because a lot of people witnessed that, myself included. Yeah. And we knew then that this wasn't education. What if it was no a yeah. long way from it? You mentioned in the book too that you um, you didn't sleep well, if at all. Um, whether it was the threat of um, planes coming and, and and bombing your camp, or you know wild animals coming through the uh, the camp, or beatings coming your way, um, nightmares were, were were an everyday thing for you. Do do you still suffer from those nightmares as as your sleep? gotten back to some sort of normality in the years since? Yeah, to be honest with you, I, um, I must admit that um, this is one of the, other than then, getting, I mean, getting over that fear of getting to the ocean by the crocodiles, but this is one of the, one of the fears that I, as a matter of fact, still struggle with. Um, so sometimes when I overslept, I would wake up literally crying yeah. uh, that I was being beaten. So it's, it's it's I think it's a a trauma that I think we'll have to find a way to overcome. Yeah. Um, and I just um, occasionally I do get help, but that is definitely something that I, especially when I'm too tired, 
I would, yeah, I would wake up literally crying that I was being beaten because it was it was constant. Yeah, it was really really constant. So, so, and oversleeping was was a no. You cannot afford to oversleep. Yeah. Because and when I talk about oversleeping, that they actually come between one o'clock, three o'clock. So between maybe one, two, three, and four. But but mainly three o'clock, two o'clock is when they would storm in and they would beat people. This is not like normal. Just beat you awake. Like, yeah. Yeah. Just and it's dark. So so when they're beating you, you know, you could be beaten in the eye. You could anywhere. But it's it's indiscriminate. Brutal. It is yeah, yeah. brutal and torture. And we'll just go up, line up in a call, most of us shivering, and start giving our instructions or yeah. what the order of, yeah. of the day is going to be like. Sometimes we are left there just standing in a pirate line. Um, we're allowed to sort of show some form of weakness, uh, mm-hmm. if not. Yeah. And it, it's, uh, it gave me a lot of, I questioned so many things as to why would an adult really behave in such a manner? Like torturing young people, like for what for? Yeah, um, all in preparation for you to be able to hold a weapon and fight yeah. in a war. I'll get you to explain um, after we take a break, Philip. Um, yeah. The moment that you were finally conscripted to go and fight, and then uh, your incredible escape yeah. uh, from Thank that you. life as you knew it, uh, and the start of a whole new adventure. Um, plenty more to get through in this episode of Inspiring Stories. We'll be back with more of it right after this. You're listening to Inspiring Stories for Barra O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. You're listening to Inspiring Stories for Barra O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. Welcome back to Inspiring Stories. Philip Lacko is our special guest in this episode, um, telling his incredible story uh, of... Uh, survival, having been taken away from his uh, village at the age of 10 um, to be uh, drafted in uh, as a child soldier, where he spent the next 10 years uh, in uh, captivity, uh, for want of a better word, uh, by the uh, the rebels who were trying to take a foothold in the southern part of Sudan uh, in that terrible uh, war that uh, went on for uh, a little over two decades. Uh, Philip, just before we get to the point where you were called up to fight um, and then your escape from, from that uh, camp. Um, one of the really crucial points that I took away from your book was that it's somewhere during those 10 years where you were um, being held captive by those rebels and having to endure these horrendous conditions, um, really the only place you were able to find solace was in a church. Uh, is, that, is, that yeah. a, is that about right? So at some point you found your way to a, a, a church in a village near a camp where you were at that point. Um, and it was a place where you were able to just find some peace in an otherwise brutal life that you were living. Uh, yeah, um, that, that is true. Um, in fact, that town called Polotaka, there was a priest there, a Catholic priest called um, Father Gary. Um, this priest has lived there for years, even speak the language around probably don't know which European country, but definitely it's Caucasian. Um, but he, he speaks the language, he even read the Bible in the laws in those languages. And to a degree, I so began to sort of, people were looking for ways to sort of maintain hope because there was complete despair. Yeah. And, you know, the idea of, you know, invoking on the spirits, um, 
became quite certain. So for us, we were just going in because we see a lot of people gathering. They they do this kind of um, they sing, and it, it seemed to some degree help. Um, and that's how I also joined in because it was something that a lot of people were were saying like there's a bit of hope, there's God, and that is going to help us to sort of overcome all these challenges. And so that's how I, I, I joined. So, and of course, one of the conditions was that you had to pick a name, yeah. uh, a name from the Bible. Um, didn't, know, didn't know what Bible was. But anyway, a colleague of mine, his name is Lado, is uh, now in South Sudan. Um, Lado, is, he picked the name Philip. I didn't even know what Philip meant. Um, just discovered that finally it's a Greek name for somebody who loves horses. And that does not sound like me at all. <laughs> you don't love horses? <laughs> Probably uh, never seen a horse at that point. Well, well, I've never seen one before. And of course, I, I've come to love love horses here, but I've, I haven't got any um, yeah. kind of... For me, I felt like... Um, so when, when I knew what it meant, um, obviously... Horse is not a bad animal. Yeah, um, I guess it's it's okay. I guess. So, so you you took on the name Philip um, after being baptized, and Philip came about because you know someone you were with also chose the name. Yes, Philip. yes, yeah. that, that's correct. Um, and then, so in fact, we were there were kind of denominations. So there was a episcopal group. So there was, like I mentioned to you, there was about sixty four tribes in South Sudan. There was one particular group. Um, uh, one particular group, mainly from the, from the Dinka tribe, most of them were aligning to Episcopal. Yep. And that was where, so most most of them were, and I've got colleagues who are actually from the same tribe, and we were going to this church, but then later realized that, um, in fact, most people from my tribe, most of them go to Catholic church. And that was how we, we managed to to go back to, to manage to go to Catholic church. And that was when I met... Um, I met um, the the priest, the Father Gary. Father Gary. But it was obviously a challenge because my first my first um, attempt to get into the church was quite dis- disastrous because um, I could not contemplate the the statue of the Virgin Mary holding the baby Jesus. You know, mm. it was couldn't couldn't get it. It so was, you'd never seen an actual no. statue before, so no, you, it, was, it was confusing. It was terrifying. In yeah. Fact, we were told that there's a dead person in that building and it hasn't rotten. Like, it's not smelling. So you thought it was a dead person. A dead person. And it's kind of frozen. Frozen, thought. yeah. And he said, they don't get it. So I, I think it took me three times to brace, to sort of overcome that fear to be able yeah. to go in. But it was quite terrifying, yeah. But um, turned out that actually it, it gave us a lot of... Um, I actually met good friends um, in, in that establishment, the yeah. church. And... It also helped turn out to be quite uh, remarkable in the sense that it was this priest who managed to actually help a lot of people because there was a time, I think I'll talk about it later, when we were really, really dying. There was yeah. no food, but it was this priest who helped a bit. Yeah. yeah. It will tell me about those times um, and then we'll get to your escape. Yeah, so so at, at that, because we're under, under constant attack from those, another rebel group, um, obviously we probably heard of the Lord Resistant Army. Uh, the Uganda Lord Resistant Army, yeah. um, who were also lurking in the area. They were also in the part of southern Sudan. So they were operating between northern Sudan and the southern part of Sudan. And most of the time, they would attack where we are. So we, we were on constant move. Uh, I think from 1990, from 1990 to 1998, mm. we never had, like, a, not 1995, we never had, like, a, like a, a proper... Stay where we stayed continuously, 
So we, we were being chased from one town uh, called Polotaka to the to a, a town called Parajok, and then from Parajok to another town called Poge. So we went, when we were all the way to the border, at this town called Poge, we were literally, there was no food, like none. So we were literally eating a lot of roots, a lot of stem. I don't know, most people know okra. Yep. So okra went, obviously, you take the the, the, the fruits, but then the stem itself became what we were eating. Um, we were There were locals there. We have to beg them. Some people who were, we didn't have good cultural upbringing. Sometimes they, they resorted to stealing. And, of course, there are a lot of consequences because the locals, they were quite... Um, they never condoned this idea of stealing. And and, and I think it, it played a big part in the sense that I think because of the way how I was brought up, we were able to sort of go in and actually beg. And I remember begging this lady to give me food and she refused. And then I walked away without saying anything. And then she called me back and she said, why are you different? But in Pidgin Arabic, so... Mm. What do you mean I'm different? He said, every other boys, when they come here, they take without asking. And said, well, from where I brought up, we always asked. If the owner said no, you, then you don't have you, that's, you don't have a right. Mm. Um, yeah, so, and then of course, became realized that people are of different cultures and they behave differently. Yeah. And that obviously gave me a lot of appreciation. And um, so the food was, was definitely, uh, I remember we used to eat, once every second day, and I remember, I remember having carrying um maize, like corn kernel, maize, and yep. so the choice was if you cook it, it won't give you enough energy. So we used to soak it in water, and then you can eat maybe a handful that will give you a bit of, of yep. energy to Just keep to going. spice it out. Yeah, um, the day finally came where you were conscripted. You were selected to go and pick up a gun and go and fight. Yeah. Tell us about that that moment, what was going through your mind. Yeah, at that moment I was already involved quite heavily uh, with the church. So and um so we're sitting in a in a place in the town called Loboni, it was nineteen ninety nine. And but before that before that we were already aware, you know, we were given some some kind of instructions because in nineteen ninety five we were definitely attacked by a, a rebel group which is in this case not Sudan, but it was the Lord Resistant Army. And we have, were given random guns that if they come, you shoot. And we were taken. We, 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 so to a degree, we knew how to, so I know how to hold a gun. And, um, but lucky enough, I, I never had to use it. But other than the fact that we were at one given time actually subjected to constant bombardment, actually a point where I remember where like a mortar landed so close to me and, was a piece of um, a rock or like a hill. If it wasn't because of that hill, there's no way I would have made it. Mm. So we were at this place um, sitting, and then all of a sudden this army came, and they said, they, they called us out. So we went in, um, we were taken into this holding place, and everybody had to remove um, like everything that they have. So we were shaven, completely shaven, then we were taken to this army, holding point, which was a bit remote from the displaced camp where we were staying. And that was when the, the training um, started. Um, and the idea was to prepare us for three months and then 
we will have to go then and actually go to the front line and, and begin to actually to fight. Yeah. Um, and I suppose at that point, yep. you had an opportunity to yes. to escape from there, knowing that the consequences of being caught would be almost certainly execution. Yes, um, certainly. So it was a yeah. So uh, <laughs> the ultimate risk, um, but you you did it. Yeah. So I think at the end, it will go back to the calling because I knew that I was you know distant for thing something that's more greater than just going to kill another person and couldn't couldn't sit well with me and also and this is the thing also when you meet people so i met uh, this lady who um she was there with her kids so her children we met in the church um and she also has almost had the same ordeal her kids were taken from her almost two years prior so she has been trying to meet no actually no it was way before that in 1989 mm. and that was 1995 1996 when we met so she has been trying to reunite with her kids she knew that the kids were in in um in camp uh, in in kakuma which is a refugee camp and she wanted to go but she couldn't make it there's no way she could make it because it's quite a bit of money so we were given food sometimes we're given um maybe a kilogram two kilograms of of maize and then we'll that is that is a ration for maybe two weeks, maybe a month, depending on how soon food comes. So there was no way we could have we could made it. So I um I actually I prayed that I got sick. I so that the the intent was if I get sick I would get admitted in the hospital and then I would eat the food in the hospital and then the food that I was supposed to be getting, I would keep it and maybe sell it and use it and as pay your way out. Yeah. And Amazing. In fact, the prayer got answered yeah. in June, um, yeah. June twentieth of two thousand and twenty, and I was terribly ill. In fact, I regret it actually. <laughs> I praying that way because I I nearly died. Uh, the colleague who was looking after me was he said people were dying almost in in sequence. I had um, severe pneumonia, and but that was good enough for me to sort of were able to sort of manage to save some some maize we were yep. able to sell that and we were able to escape to, to Uganda and of course it was risk I mm. actually escaped we were leaving to go to the front line the next day but I managed to escape the night before wow and um, uh, the day the, the day before and that obviously was I had to bury myself in a in, in a like there was bags bags in the, in the back of a truck yeah yeah and where you hid with yep. uh, with others um, and you made it out yeah. Um, and then I'll get you to t talk us through the next chapter right after we take a break, Philip. Another four years then, basically, yeah. um, in limbo in Kenya, mostly, yeah. Yeah. Um, before your eventual resettlement here in Australia. There's still so much more to get through, but uh, we need to take a break. Philip Lacco is our special guest. Back with more in a moment. You're listening to Inspiring Stories for Barra O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. You're listening to Inspiring Stories for Barra O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. Welcome back to Inspiring Stories. Tim McMillan is my name. My special guest is Philip Larko. We've been hearing his uh, incredible story uh, being drafted into a war as a 10-year-old, uh, escaping that 10 years later after 10 perilous years 
uh, in the hands of uh, rebel, a rebel army uh, that was trying to take hold of uh, southern areas of Sudan. You escaped uh, just in the nick of time, Philip, but I suppose thinking that maybe better times were ahead, you had to wait a long, long time, another four years um, as a refugee, um, mostly in, in Kenya. Life wasn't a whole lot better in those conditions, was it? It was still no. tough. Yeah, of course. Um, this is a time when, you know, you feel like you've been rescued, um, no more planes, you know, dropping bombs on you. But then at the same time, you realize that there's, there's no way out of here because everything's dry. Again, the food is now rationed. I remember we used to get um, um, maize, flour, um, a kilogram, two kilograms for two weeks. Um, and that's remember, it? Yeah, that's it. Yeah, and maybe three 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 hundred millimeters or milliliters rather of um of oil, and maybe a spoon, a spoon of um of salt, and maybe a cup of beans. And if you get wheat flour, then that's a bonus. And yeah. in fact, that was the time when I began to know um, all about Australia. Yeah. Um, and that that actually I think I remember last time I spoke about how, you know, the wheat belt here in Australia how much contribution it's making to, to refugees, it, it's it's incredible. Yeah. And it actually gave me a bit of interest, like, where is this place? Yeah. You know? and so you first became aware of Australia when um, the, the, the bag of wheat that you were given had the stamp of a kangaroo yeah. on it, this animal, of course, you'd never seen before, probably never heard of. That was the first time Australia became part of your awareness. Yeah, because the thing is, it's almost like, you know the feeling you get usually when you get um, a quarterly bonus from your employer. That was every time you get a wheat flour, it's like that bonus. That was a treat. Yes, that's right. a treat. So one sort of kind of create a bit of curiosity in me. Like, yeah. Where is this place? You know? Yeah. But yeah, so obviously meant um, that I I was able to sort of um, so obviously for any person to get resettled to another country, uh, first of all, to, for you to become a refugee, you have to have an insecurity in your country of origin, and then from there your assessment, whether you become a refugee or not, is determined at the border. At that moment, you are an asylum seeker. So when the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees determine your refugee status, you then get taken to a refugee camp. At a refugee camp, for you to be resettled into another developed countries like Australia, Canada, USA, or maybe New Zealand, you have to have another insecurity. Mm-hmm. And that insecurity, obviously, in this case, was that I... I also, again, in the church, I met a colleague named Santino Lasuba. Santino is in Brisbane now. And he had an insecurity uh, with his family because he has children from a previous marriage, um, the, the, the woman he's, mar- he's married to. And obviously the, the relatives of these children wanted to take the children back. And that, obviously, because I was known to that family, the United Nations thought that it was necessary for me to also be removed from that place. Because my life would be endangered if the way to find out that the family has left. Right. So that was the insecurity that led me to eventually make the way, make my way to, to Australia. What were your impressions when you first uh, got here? I mean, a couple of things that I've I've read about you that that stood out um, that give us both some insight into the culture shock that you experience. I mean, it's just a it's just a little thing, but the automatic opening doors, for instance, you this yeah. just confusing. Oh yeah, you've never seen anything like it. No, um, it's all probably started in Nairobi, Kenya. Um, the escalators, yeah. and then also I, I've never seen them before. And also a tattoo. Someone with a tattoo. Right. Uh, it terrified me. Really? Yes. 
I was at a waiting, you know, waiting to board the plane. Yeah. And there was this guy, probably Australian, and I made sure that I was sitting behind him because I was worried that this person, like a god. Or did, so you thought it like was spirit, something sinister? Something bad, yeah. Yeah, um, right. Because I've never seen someone with a tattoo before. And then the other thing was I've never used knives and forks before. So, and I um, kind of refused to eat in the plane. So t- because literally there was somebody also I knew sitting next to me from the same refugee camp. And I was, I didn't want to embarrass myself. So I kind of tried to hold my bit of dignity mm. because I would, there's no way I've never used, I've, I've mm. used knife and fork. So the food that they were giving, yeah, so I refused to sort mm. of, yeah. So I made it to Australia. And um, of course, first thing, your Vegemite that you usually get given to people for the first time. <laughs> you know, I um, And then suddenly, yeah, the catching bars was also a challenge. Yeah. Of course, the automatic doors, the vending machines, all those things. All those things were taken for granted. Yeah. What, but, did you, what did you make of Vegemite then? Uh, to be honest with you, I um, <laughs> it's I think it it I think maybe in the last five years it was when I I occasionally begin to sort of but you've, you've started to appreciate it. Yeah, <laughs> and it's still a question like whose idea was it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's a very good question. Very good question. You've been able to build a life for yourself. Um, yeah. You've been uh, you've prospered in the in the the resources sector. Tell us what it is that you do now and how you came to um, forge a career in the resources game. Yeah, so I first started, um, it was a program being run by TAFE. Um, so I got a, a certificate in mineral exploration. That's how I got in 2008. And while I was there, it appears that a lot of people were pushing me toward the safety area. And so since then, I did a few courses, including diploma, and I'm currently doing um, a bachelor degree. And um, so safety is, is what I do now. I'm working as a safety advisor for a mining company. Um, called Goldfields, Goldfields Australia. And um, I think I also owe a lot to this company because it is through this company that I I have been able to actually even publish my book because of the income that I'm getting. And it also allowed me to sort of even in, in, um, in March this year, the company sponsored a program where I was the keynote speaker for Harmony Week in Kalgoorlie. And obviously there was a bit of media presence there. And yeah, so I owe, I owe the company uh, yeah. a lot of a lot of um, appreciation as well, and some of the connections through Rotary. I'm a member of Rotary Club of Perth. I'm just trying to give back to the community, really. Yeah. Um, and then this organisation called Artists for a Cause, which yeah. is um, it helped um, promote um, music uh, organisations. People are trying to do fundraising for free. Yeah. yeah. You've been back to your homeland. In the years since, uh, you know, since uh, settling here in Australia, yeah. what was that like? Uh, speaking to your parents again and seeing your, your your family for the first time in such a long time, what yeah. was that like? It was it's quite emotional. I broke down for the first time seeing them, and I cried so hard. And my mum, I remember my mum calling me and sitting me on our laps, and then blowing to my ears uh, one at a time. And I could see her, how she felt like she should have done something letting me go. Because, first of all, they didn't believe that I was alive, but it was, it was 16. They, so you had no contact with them no, 16, for that whole time? Yeah, 16 years. 16 years. Yeah. And when we first, I think in 2006, that was almost the time I was about to go, managed to make contact, but they don't believe this 
phones, like somebody talking to him. Nah. Mm. Although there was some indication that they, may, they might be aware that I could be alive, but still they were, they wanted to see me mm. in person. But yeah, it was it was quite overwhelming and it was quite frightening as well. My father in particular felt really bad in the sense that he, he because as a protector of the house, he should have he should have um, say something. But the fact that I didn't hear him say anything, um, but I knew right deep deep down, even recently, I just realized that he acted knowingly because I was young enough I could be able to adopt quite easily, adapt to these harsh environments. But and also my contribution at that particular moment in the village was very minimal because I was still young. My brother could do farming, could protect the family from any any adversaries or of, of or maybe attack from um rebel not rebels but maybe enemies. So but I think that was the rationale behind the reason why he chose me instead of my older brother. Yeah. But other than that yeah it was 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 quite overwhelming in the sense that um but I think it was also there was a bit of joy as well. In fact there was a lot of joy in the sense that I was able to come back home and be yeah. able to see them again. Yeah. They don't call you Philip though, do they? <laughs> no, they do, you know, no, they call me Pitya. Yeah. Um, yeah. Do you feel kind of disconnected from um, the person that you were in the first 10 years of life? You had this massive sudden change in your life at the age of 10 that just put you through hell. You've come out the other end with this whole new life in another part of the world. Do you feel a little bit like, um, you know, that Philip from ages zero to 10 is kind of a different person. I don't know if I'm expressing it the no, right no. way, but I think, you know what I mean. Yes, so the title of the book said The 10-Year-Old Man. So I I believe I was forced to grow up to become a man in a very young age. Yep. And and I think I have been actually, even now I think one thing that usually resonate with me or with a lot of people is the emotions. So I don't have any strong emotions anymore. So like if something was terrible happen here for instance I said oh okay mm. but it won't be it won't be like oh sh-, like you won't like you won't you won't actually say like oh you know this because obviously I can't swear obviously but certainly <laughs> <laughs> but I mean like I know what you're getting you know <laughs> <laughs> you've been through a bit Philip so people's day-to-day battles are probably yeah. seem pretty pretty minor and pretty trivial compared to what you've been through yeah yeah but certainly um and I think just want to for, for all the listeners I think just the reason why the reason why I write this the book is because to sort of let let people have a bit of perspective into their yeah. lives and appreciate that Australia is is okay. Yeah. And just finally, what was it like writing the book and having to go back and walk yourself through all of those horrible times that you had to endure? What was it actually like putting it down on paper? It was quite difficult, but at the same time, it was cathartic in a sense that it was a bit of a therapy. I yeah. Think in its, I was able to sort of let out. Um, in fact, I was resistant. I was resisting the idea of writing the book, but friends were telling me that it's not about you anymore. Um, mm. This this book is not your love story. It's 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 a message to all. And in fact, it's a message to politicians, to sort of support programs that help refugees like myself. Also talk about wars, what wars does do to people. And, and it just there's nothing out of it. Um, also try to be very resilient, also try to sort of, with now COVID, the community try to sort of also make people aware that you reach out to people and of course understand that um, nothing is permanent. So whatever 
tribulations we're going through at the moment would come to an end. Uh, let's be hopeful. The world is not as bad as it seems. But of course, um, we also need to open up and begin to reach out to those that are less fortunate yep. um, in, in our societies. Philip, we're out of time. But uh, thank you so much for sharing your story with us. And uh, if people want to know more of your incredible story, The Ten-Year-Old Man uh, is the name of the book um, that you put out uh, not too long ago. Philip, thanks again for your time and all the best thank for you. the future. Thank you very thank much you very for much. You've been listening to Inspiring Stories here on 882 6PR. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. We look forward to you joining us next time as we unearth another inspiring story. You're listening to Inspiring Stories for Barra O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. Sometimes needing new tyres can catch us by surprise. That's why tyre power gives you the power of zip pay and zip money. You can get what you need now, get back on the road safely and pay for it later. Terms and conditions apply. So visit tyrepower.com.au or call 13 91.